Today on Inside Politics, countdown to Iowa. The first test of the 2024 presidential election is just six weeks away. Will the crucial caucuses propel a Trump challenger towards the nomination or push the former president closer to a second term? Plus, a wider war. Israeli forces are expanding their fight against Hamas across all of Gaza as we are learning even more of the gruesome, terrifying details of the way Hamas terrorists savagely raped women on October 7th before killing them. And destroyer of American democracy. That's what Donald Trump is calling Joe Biden. The president's campaign calls the attack a distraction, one the American people will see right through. I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. I want to start in Iowa, where just a month and a half from now, Republicans will be gathering across the Hawkeye state to select the first winner in the Republican contest. Let's go first to Jeff Zeleny, who is in Iowa in Cedar Rapids. How's it feeling there besides, I'm guessing, pretty cold? Well, Dana, there's a bit of snow on the ground and it's Christmas shopping season, so it's also time for the Iowa caucuses to enter a new phase. And talking to voters here uh, throughout the weekend, it's clear that uh, the ones who at least are inclined to participate in the Iowa Republican caucuses are paying a new level of attention. It's hard not to. There are so many television ads from all of the candidates. Uh, both Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis were in Iowa over the weekend uh, making their individual pitches. There's no question that the former president still looms large in this race in every way. He still holds a commanding lead in all of the polls, although there haven't been many recent polls. So one uh, strategist I talked to this morning said it feels like we're, quote, flying blind. They're not sure if opinions are changing. But when you talk to voters, uh, the set of Republicans who are interested in moving on from the former president, about half the party or so, they are beginning to uh, focus more intently. We talked to a Nikki Haley voter this morning. He has made up his mind. A Ron DeSantis supporter yesterday. Others are uh, still considering of Vivek Ramaswamy. We did get news this morning that North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is suspending his campaign. Of course, not a big factor in the race. But what it shows is the race is consolidating. The race is definitely getting smaller before the voting begins, and that could have an impact. But Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, of course, is putting all of his eggs into the Iowa basket. He needs to win here. He knows that. He made this point yesterday while campaigning in eastern Iowa. So I'll be able to lead because it's not going to be about my issues. It's going to be about your issues. I think that's very clear. It's clear with the media. Uh, they're agitating for it because and they're not doing anything right now. They're waiting and they want to get through the primary. And if he's you're going to see them open this up and it is going to be blistering. And unfortunately, it will work. So why would we want to nominate who the Democrats want us to nominate? Why would we want to not us to nominate who the media uh, wants us to nominate? So the Florida governor there is trying to make his uh, pitch to Iowa voters to uh, think independently and not necessarily follow the, the uh, polls that show that the former president is in the lead. But he has had his own uh, drama here, Dana. There is no doubt he's outsourced much. Uh, of his campaign to a super PAC called Never Back Down. It's gone through a massive leadership uh, turmoil. A couple different leaders in a couple different weeks, resignations, firings. The question is, is that organization going to be enough to help pull him over the finish line? Or is a uh, sort of rising support from Nikki Haley going to uh, really make a difference here? So as there is one more debate this week in Iowa or in, in Alabama on Wednesday, the fourth Republican debate, uh, most Iowans are, are watching that to see 
how their decisions go. But, Dan, I can say six weeks before the Iowa caucuses, yes, Donald Trump, it's still his race to lose. A bigger question is uh, who is in second place, and that race still is a very tight one. It sure is. Jeff, thank you for yeah. all that reporting. Got a lot in there, and we're going to talk more about uh, what Jeff just talked about with our political panel. CNN's Kristen Holmes, Carl Hulse of The New York Times, and The National Review's Ramesh Panuru. Thank you so much. Happy Monday to all of you. Uh, Kristen Holmes, you spend um, all of your time, your professional time, <laughs> covering Donald Trump and, uh, and the broader uh, field, but, but mostly the Trump campaign. Um, so the question is whether or not, based on your reporting and being out on the field, the argument that we just heard from DeSantis in Jeff's report is going to fly, meaning the whole idea is that Donald Trump is not, he can't win against Joe Biden. Well, a couple of things. So one, when I talk to Republicans, they actually don't believe that argument as much as they used to. I mean, if it was back in 2022, that was definitely the argument that DeSantis was leaning on, as well as many other Republicans saying uh, that Trump cannot win a general election. When you talk to Republicans now out in the field in these early voting states, many of them are so dissatisfied with Joe Biden and they also consume so much conservative media that is reiterating that idea that they think that there is no possible way that Joe Biden could win another election. So this electability argument isn't really there anymore. Uh, but one thing I do want to point out, you know, I was there with him in Cedar Rapids this weekend. And one thing I found to be the most striking talk about where the voters stand is before he even took the stage, somebody asked how many people here is there going to be their first time caucusing this year or in January? And half the room raised their hand. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's a really important note because we talk about how Donald Trump has this sticky base. These are not people who have been right. in his base. These are new voters that he's getting. So let's go back to DeSantis and how high the stakes are for him in Iowa. Uh, we didn't mention, or maybe Jeff did, that he just completed the full Grassley. <laughs> he has visited now all 99 counties in Iowa, which is not that easy. And uh, he has uh, certainly been touting that. Listen to what he said on Meet the Press yesterday about the importance of Iowa. We're going to win Iowa. Uh, I think it's going to help propel us to the nomination, but I think we'll have a lot of work that we'll have to do beyond that. I don't think you take anything for granted. And I do, I do recognize that there have been people that have wanted who have not gone on to win the nomination. I think this year is a little bit different. Well, there's no question that he is pursuing an Iowa first strategy, that if if he doesn't win Iowa, especially now that he's said that he's going to win Iowa, I don't think that there's any future for the campaign. He alluded to the fact that several people have won the Iowa caucuses and then lost the nomination. Mm -hmm. um, what I think differentiates him from some of those previous losers is that he's got a stronger campaign. He's got more of a campaign organization. He's got more campaign money, more supporters mm -hmm. who are high profile in the, in the various states. But none of that's going to matter at all if he doesn't win Iowa. Well, let's pull up some of that history, Carl. Uh, let's look at it. 2016, Ted Cruz won, was not the nominee. Santorum, same. Mike Huckabee, same. In fact, since 1980, the only Republicans who have won the Iowa caucuses and then ended up as the nominee, George W. Bush in 2000 and Bob Dole in 96. So not a great predictor obviously. I don't think there was much risk in him saying, I'm going to win Iowa because he has to win Iowa. And if he doesn't, it won't matter what he said. Uh, you know, the Iowa voters are pretty notoriously independent in their own ways. Mm -hmm. And they, they make some decisions that 
we don't expect. It's interesting, Jeff said there's no new polling out there, so it's hard to tell what's going on. The thing that caught me about DeSantis, and I think you caught you too, is him saying the media wants yeah. Trump and there's no reporting on Trump. And I'm like, well, he's not reading a lot of the stuff we're reading because there's a lot of reporting on Trump in his second term. I guess he just sees that as a as a good argument. But uh, you know, this is this is it for DeSantis. And he started out in this position that he was the guy, right? Obviously, I think we all sat around and go, well, he's the logical alternative to Trump. And it's just not playing out that way. And turmoil at the top in a campaign yeah. is never a good indicator of things going but turmoil, Exactly. Turmoil at the top in a campaign but also the other layer to this is that it's not even his actual campaign, it's the super PAC. And after this, well, even before this is done right now, there's a lot of looking at the way that DeSantis decided to structure his path to victory and relying so much on the super PAC where he doesn't really have, he's not supposed to have control, it is very interesting. Uh, you mentioned that you were with Trump in uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa over the weekend. He uh, likes to pontificate about his opponents, and he did so about DeSantis. Let's listen. And we hit him very hard, and he's, uh, he's been falling out of the air like a very seriously wounded bird, right, to the ground. And it's a very pleasant thing to see. Now, it looks like he's gonzo, but we never want to say that we got to get this thing finished. I think that Donald Trump is going to continue to hit Ron DeSantis until he is no longer breathing at all, which is essentially what his advisors have told me. I mean, when you look at where the poll numbers have gone, it seems actually strange that Donald Trump would still be focused on Ron DeSantis, especially given Nikki Haley's mm -hmm. surge, and she seems to be climbing in multiple states. Mm -hmm. um, but yet he has remained fixated on Ron DeSantis, part of that likely because of the disloyalty factor that he feels that he thought that he should have never run. And if he did run, he should have called him first to talk to him. Clearly, for Donald Trump, things are personal and he wants to see him lose. I think you're wearing Taylor Swift bracelets, if, I'm, if you're not. <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. But the reason I said that is because um, we want to read this quote that really caught the attention of our team uh, about from the Des Moines Register about Taylor Swift and as it relates to this campaign. Just minutes before Trump set foot on the stage, Melton, who's somebody they were talking to, 54, told the register she can't even envision anyone other than Trump as the nominee. Teens have rock stars that they follow like Taylor Swift. Grown-ups have Trump, said Melton, whose red hoodie carried a portrait of the former president, the word legend stamped underneath. It really is such a snapshot, and I didn't mean to suggest that you were anything other than a Swifty, by the way. Um, <laughs> it really is a snapshot of the cult-like figure that Donald Trump continues to be across the, well, not across the political spectrum, but sort of in the political world. It very much transcends politics. Yes, um, although one might quibble with how grown up this behavior is as applied to a political figure to, to have that same degree of devotion and fandom to, uh, to a political figure, I think, is, is not the way, it is not a healthful attitude mm -hmm. for citizens in a democracy to have. The, the thing is, though, with Trump, it's not just that he's got that hardcore base of support that will be with him regardless of what he does. It's the other Republicans who think he was a successful president, um, who think favorably of him, who have not been necessarily totally sold on him, mm. but right now they're with him. 
and those are the voters that DeSantis and Haley have to get from him. Yeah, such a good point. Okay, everybody stand by. Up next, a wider war. Israel expands operations in Gaza following the collapse of the short-term truce last week. We're live in Israel after a quick break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Just into CNN, Israeli ground forces are now operating inside southern Gaza. CNN has geolocated video confirming they're three miles from the southern city of Khan Yunus, an area where many displaced civilians have fled. This comes just a day after Israel announced it's expanding the fight against Hamas terrorists across the entirety of the Gaza Strip. CNN's Ben Wiedemann is in Jerusalem. Ben, what's the latest at this hour? Well, we've just heard from the head of Israel's armored corps that they, he says that uh, they've almost completed achieving their objectives in the north of the Gaza Strip. And certainly over the weekend, we saw a series of punishing strikes on, for instance, the Jabalia refugee camp just north of Gaza City and the Shajaya district just to the east of it. And so now it does appear that the focus is going to be on the south. As you said, uh, the Israelis now have armor on the Salah Adin Street, which is the main north-south highway uh, linking the north with the south. That was the route through which people had been advised to move from the north uh, to the south. But now, of course, the problem is uh, that there are hundreds of thousands of people uh, crammed into the south, the area where they had been advised to go uh, to be in a safer area. And what we have now is a mounting humanitarian crisis in much of southern Gaza, where the schools that have been turned into shelters are full of people. We're hearing from uh, the UN that in some instances there are as many as 400 people to a single toilet. That's if a toilet is actually uh, functioning as well. In the town of Der al-Bela, which is to the southern part of the, of the Gaza Strip, the only functioning bakery was hit overnight. 
As a result, there was looting there. Uh, what we heard from people there is that the situation is desperate and it is increasingly chaotic. Dana? Ben, thank you so much for that report. I want to come back here to the U.S. and talk about an alarming warning from the White House about the war in Ukraine. The White House budget director says there's no money left for the U.S. to support the fight. And unless Congress acts fast, that will, quote, kneecap Ukraine on the battlefield. CNN's Arlette Signs is at the White House. Sounds like a very dire situation on a war that is still raging uh, in Ukraine, thanks to Russia attacking it almost two years ago. Yeah, Dana, and the White House is really trying to build pressure on lawmakers to pass this funding for Ukraine. The OMB director essentially say, saying this is a do or die moment and time is running out. Now, the, the lawmakers have had the supplemental funding request uh, since, since October, but there has not been action yet to pass this bill. $106 billion in funding for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and border security. And in her letter to congressional leaders today, OMB director Shalanda Young laid out the stakes saying, quote, I want to be clear, without congressional action by the end of the year, we will run out of resources to procure more weapons and equipment for Ukraine and to provide equipment from U.S. military stocks. There is no magical pot of funding available to meet this moment. We are out of money and nearly out of time. Now, House Speaker Mike Johnson uh, quickly responded to this letter in a post on social media, arguing that the administration has yet to provide a clear strategy uh, for the future in Ukraine and how this funding would be used, and also once again, Again, insisting that this include any any national security supplemental funding include major changes to border security policy. Uh, so it remains unclear at this moment whether lawmakers will be able to clear these hurdles as the administration is issuing these very dire warnings about the state of this funding for Ukraine and what it could mean on the yeah. battlefield as they're still fighting against Russia. Arlette, I spoke to Lindsey Graham yesterday, a Republican of South Carolina, who's a huge supporter of U.S. funding for Ukraine, who said, point blank, they're not going to get any money, neither will Israel, unless uh, Congress also agrees on border security and other immigration reforms. So there really does seem to be a stalemate. Thank you so much for that reporting. Appreciate it. And coming up, Donald Trump is calling President Biden the destroyer of democracy. But the Biden camp is unfazed, calling the jab a distraction. Former President Donald Trump offered his most forceful rebuttal to President Biden's argument that a second Trump term would threaten American democracy. Over the weekend, Trump did what Trump does. He took a weakness and tried to paint it as a problem for his adversary, saying it's actually Biden who threatens democracy. Joe Biden is the destroyer of American democracy, and it's... It's him and his people. So if Joe Biden wants to make this race a question of which candidate will defend our democracy and protect our freedoms, and I say to Crooked Joe, and he's crooked, the most corrupt president we've ever had, we will win that fight, and we're going to win it very big. Biden's campaign is responding today, calling the comments a desperate attempt at distraction, adding, quote, Donald Trump's America in 2025 is one where the government is his personal weapon to lock up his political enemies. You don't have to take our word for it. Trump has admitted to it himself. Let's talk more about this with our panel. They're not wrong. Trump has said almost verbatim, I'm going to use the Justice Department to go after my political enemies and more. Right. And what Trump says is that 
Biden has opened the door for him to do that because right. of all of these prosecutions of Trump himself. Now, of course, there are some differences here. One of them is that, you know, certainly the case uh, against Trump on document retention um, seems to be very, very, very solid. That, and um, these charges sort of had to be brought to vindicate the rule of law. But you do get in this difficult position where one of the major presidential candidates is, in fact, at risk of going to jail. And he's going to make that his basic campaign argument in 2024. Kristen, this is vintage Trump. Yeah, I mean, look, first of all, his entire argument for why Biden is a threat to democracy is because of these four indictments that he's facing, saying that it is Biden who is weaponizing the Justice Department against his political enemy being Donald Trump. Again, Trump himself has said that he would weaponize the Justice Department to retaliate against his critics and enemies. The other part of this is that Trump has also said that he would get rid of anyone who works in the government who would stand in his way, essentially, any civil servant by removing, you know, in talking about Schedule F. Also, he has talked about moving the executive branch, taking it out of being an independent entity and operating independently, and moving it underneath the executive so that he could control it so that it yeah. would work in his favor. Let's talk, continue on this looking ahead uh, to the alarm bells that a lot of Republicans are ringing about a potential second Trump term. Uh, the biggest ringer, uh, one who's selling a book, is Liz Cheney. Let's listen to what she said yesterday. He's told us what he will do. It's very easy to see the steps that he will take. People who say, well, if he's elected, it's not that dangerous because we have all of these checks and balances, uh, don't fully understand the extent to which the Republicans in Congress today um, have been co-opted. One of the things that we see happening today is a sort of a, a sleepwalking into uh, dictatorship in the United States. Wow, pretty powerful. I mean, I think that what alarms people is that Donald Trump was president for four years and he learned uh, that he didn't want to be surrounded by people who were going to restrain him. Mm -hmm. So looking forward, people are going, he's going to bring in people who will help him. And to the checks and balances comment, one reason the checks and balances work is because previously uh, people in the different branches weren't intent on overriding them, right? So some of that was restraint on people who held these offices. We're doing a lot of reporting on what a second Trump administration would look like. It's a tricky thing, though, for Trump. You see, he has to say certain things to motivate his people, as he did in Iowa there, and, you know, people really cheer that. But he can't go so far, but he will, obviously, to alarm the rest of the, the public. So... Uh, that's that's uh, I think they're trying to have it both ways. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't know, but it, there is definitely a lot of well, you mentioned The Times is done reporting on it. Uh, others are starting to look at it uh, more specifically. I'm just going to read a couple of things that we've seen in the last uh, day. This is from Robert Kagan, The Washington Post uh, column. Like Caesar, Trump wields a clout that transcends the laws and institutions of government based on unswerving personal loyalty of his army of followers. Will his presidency turn into a dictatorship? The odds are, again, pretty good. And then at The Atlantic, you mentioned, David Frum writes, Trump would arrive with a much better understanding of the system's vulnerabilities, more willing enablers in tow, and much more focused agenda of retaliation against his adversaries and impunity for himself. When people wonder what Trump what another Trump term might hold, their minds underestimate the chaos 
that would lie ahead. So it's the point that you made, Carl, about uh, there were people who were there who were kind of trying to put putting guardrails on. Those people are like, I'm not coming anywhere near. Plus the fact that he has he Trump has a better understanding because he had never been in office before. Well, and I'd also add that no opportunities have been taken to restrain the powers of the presidency. So we have had these warnings growing in recent years, especially under Trump. But the Insurrection Act, which is vaguely worded and which seems to give the president a lot of power to call out the military, that hasn't been changed, for example. Nobody's even really tried to make that effort. There have been some changes. The Electoral Count Act mm -hmm. was tightened up, for example. But there's so much that a determined president who doesn't care about the Constitution can do. And it's not just the president. It's that he has people working right now before he's even entered into a general election, before he is the nominee, working on workarounds, looking at the policies he wants to enact and saying, how can we do this without going through Congress? How can we do this if there's going to be legal pushback? What does it say exactly in the Constitution? Where are the loopholes here? And that is, again, it all is about the fact that he knows what he wants now. He didn't know what he wanted in 2016. And what's really interesting is that all of this and a lot of what we're hearing from people who worked very closely with him in the first term, uh, the question is whether or not if it does come down to Trump versus Biden, e even those who are criticizing him might support Trump anyway. Listen to what Lindsey Graham told me yesterday about this idea. I think Liz's hatred of Trump is real. I understand why people don't like what he does and says at times, but in terms of actions and results, he was far better president for Biden. And if we have four more years of this, Liz Cheney, then we won't recognize America and the world will be truly on fire. He's obviously responding to the Liz Cheney quote, which I played Well, earlier. Mitch McConnell, who was probably the number one uh, Republican enemy of Donald Trump, has said that uh, he would support the Republican nominee. Right. And I think, you know, in the House, there'll be enthusiastic support. In the Senate, not so enthusiastic, but support. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is um, perplexing, and it is going to be a conundrum uh, if, in fact, Donald Trump is the nominee. We're not here that, th there yet. Coming up, very different topic. We have more stomach-churning details about Hamas terrorists' savage rape of women on October 7th. Congressman Richie Torres says it calls for nothing less than unequivocal condemnation. Not all of his colleagues in the Progressive Caucus agree. We're going to talk to him next. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. It has been nearly two months since Hamas terrorists attacked Israel, and today the United Nations is holding a special session on sexual-based violence, war crimes against Israeli women by Hamas. I asked Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal about this yesterday. Here's part of her our exchange. I've seen a lot of progressive women, generally speaking, they're quick to defend women's rights and speak out against using rape as a, as a weapon of war, but downright silent on what we saw on October 7th and what might be happening 
inside Gaza right now to these hostages. Why is that? I, I mean, I don't, I don't know that that's true. I think we, we always talk about the impact of war on women in particular. In fact, I remember 20 years ago, I did a petition around the war in Iraq. Have you said, saying have that, you talked about it since oh, October absolutely. 7th? And I've condemned what Hamas has done. I've condemned Specifically all of women. the actions. Absolutely. The, the rape, the, of course. But I think we have to remember that Israel is a democracy. That is why they are a strong ally of ours. And if they do not comply with international humanitarian law, they are bringing themselves to a place that makes it much more difficult strategically for them yeah. to be able to build the kinds of allies to keep public opinion yeah. with them. And frankly, uh, morally, I think we cannot say that one war crime deserves another. That is not what international humanitarian with, with, law says. Okay, with, with respect, I was just asking about the the women, and you turned it back to Israel. I'm asking you about Hamas, in fact. I already answered your question, Dana. I, I said it's horrific. Several of Jayapal's Democratic colleagues took to social media to disagree with her take. One of them is Congressman Richie Torres of New York, who joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. Why do you think it's difficult for some members of your party to unequivocally call out the barbaric sexual violence against Israeli women? Look, there's often been a double standard uh, against Israel uh, when it comes to condemning the sheer butchery and barbarism of Hamas. Public officials have a moral obligation to speak with clarity rather than caveats. And, and I found it deeply troubling, for example, that the UN woman, the so-called women's rights arm of the United Nations, went 50 days without commenting on or condemning the sexual atrocities that Hamas perpetrated against Israeli women. Uh, for me, this is not about politics. This is about decency. It is indecent to deny or downplay on both sides the rape and sexual violence against Israeli women on October 7th. Uh, my colleague Jake Tapper reported on Israel's investigation into sexual violence committed against Hamas a few weeks ago. I want you to listen to what one human rights law expert told him, and I want to warn our viewers this contains graphic and disturbing accounts of sexual violence. Dr. Kohav El-Kayam Levy, named chair of the Civil Commission on October 7th crimes by Hamas against women and children, points to one reason why the investigations have been so difficult. We'll never know everything that has happened to them. We know that most women who were raped and who were sexually assaulted were also murdered. And Congressman, since that reporting that Jake did, in fact, over the weekend, more has come out. And again, I want to warn our viewers, this is, this is tough, but it's important to hear. This is from the Times of Israel. 39-year-old witness Yoni Sadon, who attended the Nova Music Festival on October 7th, said she fell to the ground, shot in the head. I pulled her body over me and smeared her blood on me so it would look as if I was dead too. I will never forget her face. Every night I wake up to it and apologize to her saying I'm sorry. After an hour, he peeked out. I saw this beautiful woman with the face of an angel and eight or 10 of the fighters beating and raping her. She was screaming, stop it already. I'm going to die anyway from what you are doing. Just kill me. When they finished, they were laughing and the last one shot her in the head. So this is the kind of barbarism that we are hearing more and more about. Uh, and you mentioned, Congressman, that it's hard for people to speak out about this when it is Israel. 
Can, can you explain why that is? Look, there's, there's, been, a, there's been a long-standing pattern of, of anti-Semitism directed against the Jewish state. You know, Israel is the only country on earth whose existence is called into question. That's targeted for both destruction and delegitimation. Um, and so Israel's combating double standards and delegitimation campaign, even as it seeks to defend itself after the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust. Um, uh, so this is nothing new. This is just repeating a pattern that we've seen before. And you said this, it goes beyond politics, and that is an understatement. But I, I do want to ask about what is going on inside your progressive caucus, because I've certainly heard that there is a lot of, uh, of turmoil. I do want to say that the, the chairwoman who I had on yesterday uh, has been one who, like you, who has called what happened on October 7th a terror attack. She has not used that I've seen the term genocide, which is what other members of your uh, progressive caucus have used, uh, using that word incorrectly to describe what Israel is doing to retaliate. Can you describe the, the division and, frankly, what I've heard is anguish inside the Democratic Progressive Caucus over, over this? I mean, I mean, the word division gives the impression that it's evenly split. I mean, mm -hmm. almost every member of the Democratic Caucus has been unequivocal in condemning the sheer savagery of Hamas. Uh, there, there is a fringe that uses provocative language, dishonest language, like ethnic cleansing or genocide, but that is fundamentally unrepresentative of the mainstream of not only the Democratic Caucus, but also the Progressive Caucus. Congressman, I really appreciate you coming on today uh, and, uh, and giving, as you said, you believe is the majority of the Progressive Caucus's point of view. Thank you, Congressman. Of course. And coming up, who thought Obamacare would be an issue in the 2024 Republican race? Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis are promising it will be. Plus, brand new CNN reporting from the Biden campaign and what their message will be on a prescription for a 2024 win. New reporting just in, President Biden has a prescription, the campaign says, for a 2024 turnaround. This is for undecided voters, and it includes a major focus on health care and cutting prescription drug prices. Arlette Sines is back with us now with this new reporting. Arlette, what are you hearing? Well, Dana, President Biden and his campaign have been seizing on former President Donald Trump's threat to repeal and replace Obamacare. The president even uh, expressing surprise that the, the Trump would reopen this conversation as Biden has talked with his aides about it. But beyond just attacking Trump and laying out the stakes of what's uh, at, under threat, uh, the advisors also acknowledge that the president needs to talk about what he will be doing in a second term when it comes to health care. It's expected that in the coming weeks there will be a more concerted push for Biden to talk about some of these agenda items. Now, some of the items that he's expected to push it for in a second term would include ex extending those price cuts for insulin and other drugs that are currently benefiting Medicare enrollees, trying to expand that to the full American public. Another issue is also trying to extend the enhanced federal premium subsidies that have made Obamacare, uh, health care obtained on the Obamacare exchanges, more affordable. Those are currently 
set to expire in 2025. He is hoping to make them a permanent beyond that. But Democrats and the White House recognize that health care can be a very politically potent issue for them. It's something that they've won on before, and it's something that they've really been eager to draw a contrast with Trump as he's made these recent threats. Yeah, I'm sure they definitely are eager. Thank you so much for that great reporting. Our panel is back with us. Uh, let's talk about a little bit more. We talked earlier in the program, but a little bit more about uh, the contrast that Arlette was talking about. Let's listen to what the former president said in Iowa over the weekend on Obamacare. We're also going to fight to give much better health care than what you have right now. This is a newer subject, but Obamacare is a disaster. And I said, we're going we're gonna to do something about it. Not a newer subject. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. But first, I want you to listen to what Ron DeSantis said on this subject uh, yesterday. President Trump promised that he would repeal and replace Obamacare, and he didn't do it. I think it's important to point out he's running on a lot of the things he campaigned on in 2016. So Obamacare hasn't worked. We are going to replace and supersede with a better, better plan. And that plan, he said, will come out in the spring see where he is uh, in the spring, he meaning DeSantis. Is this a winning issue for Republicans? I don't think so, no. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the politics of it flipped pretty um, uh, comprehensively back in 2017 when Republicans actually tried replacing Obamacare. Uh, it does not appear that any lessons have been learned um, by Republicans when they talk about health care. They haven't figured out what they want to do instead of Obamacare, and they act as though the main challenge is coming up with the right verb to describe how they want to pulverize it, repeal, replace, supersede. Um, there's a huge health care system with a lot of problems. A conservative or a Republican, I think, does need to have a platform having to deal with that. Having that platform exclusively look mm -hmm. at a particular set of changes that was made 13 years ago, some of which have then been changed since then, I think it makes no sense at all. So we were around during the uh, votes. Thumbs down. Uh, well, thumbs down, and then even before that, when they actually put uh, Obamacare into place. And at the time, you remember Rahm Emanuel, who was the White House chief of staff, and others inside the Obama administration saying, if we might take a short-term hit, but it would be hard to take away something once it's there. Look at this uh, from the Kaiser Family Foundation. The red lines are people who uh, oppose Obamacare, blue support. I mean, it just goes up, 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 up as people are getting more and more used to having that benefit. Democrats cannot believe their good luck, right? Talk more about getting rid of something that actually has become popular and is a winner for them. I think in some respects, one of their challenges is going to be reminding people what it was like before Obamacare, mm -hmm. pre-existing conditions, that sort of thing, disqualifying you from insurance. The, the reason they haven't come up with a replacement is because it's really hard. It's really expensive. There's only so much you can do. So, I mean, I think the Republicans have stepped in it on this in a major way. Yeah, and overall, I don't think Republicans want to take this on. I mean, I think this is a Donald Trump thing. I mean, he read but this But he is like the Republican. He is the Republican, <laughs> but I think everyone was one surprised when he put this out there. I mean, his team has been putting out policy video for policy video. Absolutely nothing on Obamacare. They did not know this was going to be at the forefront. This is completely new for them after he read this Wall Street Journal. Greatest hits. At, uh, bad. Yeah, exactly. And and do keep in mind that he promised a version of health care when he was in office and didn't do it. Yeah. So I think that most Republicans wish that this would just go away. Thank you so much, all of you.
It's great to have each of you here on this uh, happy Monday. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining Inside Politics. CNN News Central starts after the break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.